Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I'm your host and chief goddess of the PASS Foundation, Annalise Corbin. We know the current model for education is obsolete. It was designed to create fleets of assembly line workers, not the thinkers and problem solvers needed today. We've seen the innovations that are possible within education, and it's our goal to leave the box behind and reimagine what education can look like in your own backyard. Welcome to today's episode. As always, very excited because we get to have amazing, fun, and just-in-time conversations as we sort of navigate what's going on in the world of education today. And so joining us, we have a very special guest, Dr. Marie Gervais, um, who is CEO of Shift Management Incorporated, which specializes in helping people grow into supervisory and managerial positions to build their leadership and confidence skills and to support their teams in meeting business objectives effectively. And so what does all of that have to do um, with the majority of our listeners who are in K-12? Well, Marie is going to help us understand that because based on everything that I have seen in Marie's work, there is a lot of connection. So Marie, welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be a guest. So, Marie, let's start with sort of the 100,000 sort of foot view. Workforce is the thing that everybody's talking about. We're talking about it from the nature of the state of the economy, both uh, locally, regionally, globally. Um, But we're also talking about workforce a lot as it relates to the way we think about teaching, learning, and the future of work or work of the future, depending on your sort of perspective on this. And so help us sort of understand how you got into this ecosystem. Well, my mother was a teacher, and um, she w- she started in you know the the beg- at the end of the dirty thirties, and um, and uh, you know had six weeks of teacher education, and then was thrown into a grade one to twelve classroom in the middle of nowhere with no help and sixty kids, <laughs> and so um, and I went with her to all the different schools, as did my sister and brother, or to schools nearby. So we moved around a lot and went to also before and after school care. Uh, babysitters of varying degrees of competency. Um, and um, and so I just grew up thinking that everybody was a teacher and I wanted to be a teacher when I grew up. And that's all I, that's the only experience I had. I didn't, other than the fact that my dad went from one job to the next, he was an immigrant from Germany and he went from one job to the next until he finally um, landed in something he liked best, which was healthcare. He worked as a nursing orderly till his retirement. And um, so I, um, my mother used to tell me when I was growing up to follow in her footsteps, but to try to find a way to be my own boss if possible. And so I remember always thinking of ways to try and uh, juggle that. I certainly was very intrigued by and interested in education. And I I remember when my children were growing up and they'd say, what's the most important thing in the world? And I'd go, children and the development of children. What's more important than that? Youth and the development of youth. What's more important? (laughs) And that's Um, And that's always, always what I thought. And I still think that it's just that I'm no longer in the formal education system. And that happened through a variety of circumstances, mainly being um, the school system that I was in was, I think, anti-learning. To give you an example, they sent me uh, a very nasty letter when I enrolled in a master's program saying that I was doing a big disservice to my students by getting more education. Hmm. Go figure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Go figure is right. Yeah. Um, so, and then, and a lot of other, a lot of other things that led to me, you know, pursuing graduate studies and then being increasingly, um, uh, facing an increasingly hostile environment from my colleagues and, um, and from a school, the, the school district that I was working in and also the um, uh, principals. 
And so, and then it just, I just felt like I needed to try something different. So I went and worked as the educational coordinator for a non-for-profit, an anti-racism non-for-profit, which opened the world of work to me from many perspectives. So I really didn't know much about the the non-profit world. And that was really interesting to me. And uh, I also learned about industry and partnering not-for-profit with industry. And also when you have social work and education partnering, what happens? and healthcare and social work and education. And I started to see things from much more of a bird's eye view instead of just, you know, looking at it from the perspective of being a teacher in a classroom. And um, and then I left the not-for-profit to start my own business. Um, uh, and it was either try to find a job at university and suffer the same death that I suffered in the school system or um, leave the business of education to get into the business of education. So I became... <laughs> an educational consultant for adults. And I developed a business around training and development where I saw the biggest need. And the biggest need was in supervisory leadership where people were treated like they were stupid and given no credibility for what they already knew or um, recognition for their operations understandings and where they had had a very bad experience with school. And I thought, you know what? I know about having a bad experience with school. Um, and, uh, and my dad had a learning disability and never got past grade eight and missed a lot of school because of the war. And so I know about people's negative attitudes. I knew, you know, I, I, it was not a problem for me to just move into that world and feel that it was, it was easy to connect. And if, when they had questions about their children in school, I was right there because I just did what to do. So it, it seemed like a fairly natural transition, although the actual learning to run a business was certainly not natural. And I had no role model. So I had to go to school again, really. I had to just take lots of courses and 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 workshops and figure stuff out. Uh, and then ended up also teaching to entre- immigrant entrepreneurs how to mm-hmm. start a business. Yeah. And I thought, okay, well, I've made all the mistakes. So I can tell you about that. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. 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 So, so lots of synergies and connections there. Let's talk a little bit about the notion of workforce. And the reason I want to dig in on this a little bit with you is because you are coming at this from a little bit of a different angle than, than we've talked about on this program before, but we talk about workforce all the time, right? And so yeah. it's it's critically important for folks to understand that the, the concept of workforce, what we mean by that as, as, as uh, humanity, right? And what the potential of that is when we think about workforce very, very differently in terms of the way we educate, the way that we train, the way that we prepare, the way we incentivize. So could, could we take just a moment? I'm super, super curious. I would love for my listeners to, to hear sort of how you, in the ecosystem you've now created um, through through your business, through your books, through, through your own podcast, where you spend a lot of time talking about workforce how do you define it or what does it mean to you to boil it sort of down into the nugget that you think is most meaningful? Well, to participate in the workforce is to feel that you've been accepted into society and and that you're playing a useful role. It gives you a sense of worth and purpose, but then you feel deceived if that sense of worth and purpose is either not developed or reciprocal, or if you don't know how to negotiate the workspace. And um, and there's a dual side of both you want to feel that what you're doing is purposeful and meaningful, and you also want to be compensated for it. And so if you have those two things being unsatisfactory, you, people develop a, a bitterness about work. And one of the reasons that's unsatisfactory is because they haven't been introduced to the world of work when they were in school. And, you know, the, the school guidance counselors tell, tell you to, you know, 
oh, you're not, either you're university material or you're, or you're not. That doesn't help you much. Um, although they have improved a bit, but even then you get some, you know, you get a little bit of advice, but not much because the people that are advising are people who haven't experienced other things. That's all they, they all they know is, is working within the business of education. And, and the same thing happens if you go to college or university. They just want, they perpetrate the system. They don't help you to figure out where you are in the world at work. And um, I certainly ran into that with my children and uh, now seeing that with my grandchildren. And right now, and I also followed the trends specifically with regard to the future of work and uh, where work is going and how education and, and industry and all the other sectors of, of the way human experience expresses itself to earn a living, um, how they come together. And so right now, there's a lot of talk about technology, which is certainly important. And, you know, all the top jobs right now, data research and, uh, you know, um, internet security and the digital, digital security, overcoming digital scamming issues, like all of that is like, that's where there is so much need, but there's hardly enough people there. They're ready and, and the school systems have not caught up to prepare people for that. But that's not the only big need. The other big need is that people don't know how to connect. They don't have community and they don't know how to make interpersonal connections and help other people feel safe and happy and satisfied. And that's the, that's what 80 to 85% of uh, employers are looking for more because almost everyone's going to have to upskill their technology. Most people have accepted that now, but not everyone has to upskill it to the point where they have to be um, you know, data, data scientists. Um, and even data scientists have to get along with their team and with their managers. And if they can't, it's not going to fly. Uh, and then the next, the other one is the aging population um, and more and more people required for care. And here we have five generations in the workplace. And most students in school right now know their grandparents and know other aging relatives that are in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, higher. Um, they have little brothers and sisters. They've got we are we have five generations in the workplace and people need to know how to get along and communicate across generational difference in addition to cultural difference mm -hmm. and social class difference yeah so that that is super super fascinating I don't mean to interrupt but I, I want to circle back around because you're actually probably the first person that we've had on the program that has talked about the breadth and depth of the current workforce so five generations are represented in our current workforce. Everybody should take a moment to sort of step back and pause and think about what that means, right? Because we've not seen this like this in a really long time. You know, uh, I've interviewed a, a couple of other folks that spend a lot of time um, in that sort of future workspace that you alluded to, really sort of talking about the fact that, you know, we are no longer a workforce that retires at a certain point and then steps out of the workforce, right? That, that, that work is lasting much longer. We're living longer. Our aspirations are longer for a whole host of, you know, economic reasons. We need to be making a different sort of set of choices. And so to your point, it, re it means that we are going to have more people contributing to the workforce for longer. And I'm curious about how folks are really internalizing that piece of the conversation because it does mean that you can show up at 18 and you may be working side by side with somebody who's who's 70, yep, 75, plus. right? That's not that's not uncommon. So so mm -hmm. how how can, for example, to take this back it's sort of our school space, and I've got we're gonna go a couple different threads I want to run through with you here. Um, but one of them is so how how do schools help young people, right? Because we, we can't necessarily affect those that are at the at 70 and plus in the workforce directly right now. How how can schools better equip 
our younger populations that are entering into that workforce understand and be ready and prepared to work collaboratively, productively, collegially with folks that are so much older than they are? Well, I think it's not even older. It's also younger. So um, I think the first way that schools can do this is to drop the whole, you've got to get a job and have a career emphasis. Mm Mm-hmm. Which almost that's the, every. So what do you want to do when you grow up? Right. What are you gonna Wrong be? question to ask. You should never ask a child that. Absolutely. No. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and then and with it, it's there's so much emphasis on get a job, make money, be successful, and it, it's and the way you find out what your talents are and how you can be at your best is through service. And schools can easily promote service. And I want to give you an example of a school I wa- I walked into not so long ago, where I it was just dripping with service. And and <laughs> I tell you what happened to the dog. So this was a middle school, and they um, and I went in to uh, bring a speaker to to the event. When I when I as soon as I came to one of the school doors, there were two students who rushed to the door, opened the door, and said, "Welcome to our school." Mm-hmm. And then one of them one of them said, "You must be new. We haven't seen you here before. Could we take you to the office?" And so they took me to the office and like every, every part of my experience was people saying, can we be of service? Can we help you? Um, the, the kids introduced the speaker, the kids, um, you know, emptied the program, the kids thanked the speaker, the kids gave the gift, the kids thanked the staff for helping to facilitate this. The whole thing was service oriented and I was absolutely blown away with how good it was. And I said to the, to the, to the principal, how did you do this? And he said, we base everything on in our school on how we can be of service individually, in a small group, collectively, and how we can be ambassadors of service as a school. So when we go somewhere, people see us as being helpful and looking for ways to serve instead of gimme, gimme, gimme. There was zero entitlement in that whole school. And he said, and he told me stories about some kids that had horrific uh, uh, home situations uh, where there was lots of abuse, there's you know, what kids that have been through 18 foster homes and they were only 10 years old and and how service gave them a sense of purpose to help them to develop talents. Um, all the kids belong to uh, one serve up club and one serve down club and one serve in club. And so it's and all of the staff mentored. So it like to me, it was really beautiful. And um, it I asked him how he found time to do that, and how he did. And he said, I just I put it to the staff and to the students and we got ourselves into work groups and we started it five years ago and we've been continuing it ever since. And he said, you wouldn't believe how many kids come back to us to thank us for this and say how it equipped them for high school, how it equipped them for the, for the workforce, how when they, how they, it was easy for them to get a job, how they had all these leadership skills that they didn't know they'd had before being at the school. Service, service is the key. Yeah. Schools can do it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And service learning, fortunately, is a trend that we're seeing really, really picked up, especially post-pandemic. So it's one of those those elements of sort of the transformative um, the, the transformative ecosystem that's just really, really sort of taken hold. Um, and we're seeing more and more. So I, I appreciate that very much as well, because I agree with you. I think that um, service, service learning, service components, you know, fully embedded into the culture of, of the school that you're attending is um, wickedly powerful. It is because that's how you discover your individual purpose and your and, and your career becomes so much more clear. And part of that service would also be bringing um, people from, you know, to the school to talk about their careers, which they're already doing, but I think it needs to be a bit deeper. Um, and then having projects where there are seniors and 
and and kids working together on things, um, and also caring. So caring for there's empathy projects about for ch- children, babies, animals, and but there's no empathy project projects for seniors. And you know, like my father's 93, he has alt- severe Alzheimer's, he's blind and deaf, and he just broke his hip and he's in the hospital. He doesn't know what's going on. And I'd say that half of the staff there that are nurses that have been trained how to do this, they just don't, they still don't know how to make him feel at all, at all. Like he's a human being there, yeah. you know? Yeah. I mean, I talk about it all the time as an anthropologist, right? You know, it's the part of the, one of the biggest struggles that I think that we have from a systems perspective, sort of globally, and take your pick on the system you want to talk about is that we've lost the humanity within the system exchange, right? And because of that, right, I think that we are battling ourselves in, in many, many ways, right? You know, we're, we're ill-equipped and we're ill-prepared and we're, we're not able to make decisions. We're, we're not able to react um, fast enough, you know, take, take your pick, if you will. But I do think that's an intriguing piece, so I appreciate it's, that. It's yeah. based in recognizing that there's a spirit in everything, that every living thing and every living person has a spirit and that we're all interconnected and we have a responsibility to ourselves and to the planet. And when, and that's really a sacred trust. And if that becomes part of the way we talk about things in the school system, it's going to, it's going to make a big difference to kids in so many ways. It also gives them tools and resources that they might not be getting from other sources. The other um, thing that I think is, is really important um, that schools can do is to either learn themselves or bring in someone who can teach them emotional regulation so that kids can learn self-regulation. So, um, I mean, my, my, my son who teaches junior high is often telling me stories about how, you know, like a student will faint before they do a math exam or how they have a complete meltdown and start thrashing around and throwing stuff because they don't, they're completely out of control. Um, and, you know, and they and I've, you know, because I'm related to him, it's a conflict of interest. So I can't go into his school and do his thing, you know, the thing. But it is, there are lots of emotional regulation techniques that you can teach kids that they take to just like that. Like they just love it. You can teach them to breathe and to slow down their breathing. You can teach them to use to use tapping to regulate their emotional system. And and once they've learned the tools, they just start using them. They start calming themselves down and they become so much more reasonable and manageable in everything that they do. Because if you're emotionally upset, if you don't know where your next meal is coming from, if you don't know if you have insecurity in your family, if the school feels like it's a dangerous place to be, um, no wonder kids are triggered all the time. And then you add to that all of the other the other issues with self-harm and, you know, increased drug use and that sort of thing. And so you to prepare for the workplace, you have to be able to regulate yourself. You have to be able to take care of your own emotions. Yeah, and no, that is absolutely. the number one thing before yeah. anything else. And that can be taught and used in the school. You can start every every class with a couple of minutes of emotional regulation, calming technique, and the kids just they just soak it up like sponges. So yeah, I think that's really important. You combine that with service and you know discussion about what can we do to make this more meaningful for everybody, and it all starts to fall into place. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. I also want to sort of circle back around something that you said very early on in our conversation around the idea that um, we don't give kids the opportunity to experience and explore the notion of work, right, or career early enough, right? And so let's, let's dig into that a little bit because I agree with you 100%. Um, you know, at past, we believe that... Um, 
thoroughly. Um, we, we, we believe the, the opportunity for kids to be fully engaged and immersed in the opportunity to involve themselves in solving real problems that are tied to career or, or a whole host of other things um, is really a meaningful and engaging experience for students. In fact, we have found that you can take the youngest learners um, you know, toss a real quandary or problem to them from an industry partner and allow them to explore how to solve the thing. It could be as simple as, you know, how do we get rid of, of plastic bottles of, you know, plastic, plastic uh, Coke or soda bottles, right? Um, you know, what, what would be another product that that could be we put in that is more environmentally um, friendly? Take your pick. There are so many different things, quite frankly, that the world of work is working on. But we have this notion that kids aren't able to participate in that. And that's just not true. Intellectually, um, kids really, they, they'll surprise you every time if you give them the opportunity. I, I, I mean, every single time. I agree with that. So how, how, how would you coach a school that says, look, we really want to go down that road, but we don't even know how to get there? How would you help you know, an elementary, a middle school, a high school think about the way they could incorporate the world of work across their curriculum all the time? Because that's a lot of the work that we engage in, and it's an ongoing conversation. I hear all the time, but I have to teach this on Tuesday, right? And, and, and you know, and that particular math doesn't have anything to do with what we're working on right now, where, quite frankly, we, we argue you can sort of step back from anything that you're teaching. You can add an industry real-world problem into it, and you can actually have a more robust opportunity for teaching and learning, whatever that topic happens to be that you need to tackle. How do you help folks get there? Uh, I think part of the answer comes from schools are very insular, and they like to do everything on their own and run their own worlds. And a lot of times when I used to teach teachers, I'd ask them why they wanted to become a teacher, and they had the same two responses. I love kids, which you may not all the time. And the other one, I want to share my knowledge and wisdom. Okay, so you're 22 and you have a lot of knowledge and wisdom to share and you think kids are going to want to know it. <laughs> so um, I, now I lost my train of thought because you asked a really good question. How, how, so how, how do you get there? Come, yeah. And I came, I wanted to do, you know, I, I, I was an arts art educator and then I taught kindergarten and then I taught you know, language arts, but I always had something where I could create my own world so that I could make that world understandable to me and students. We could live in that little world, that little bubble, right? So I did the same. I did the same thing, um, and and I only started at the end of my 17 years of teaching in the school system. I only started to reach out to things like lawyers and engineers associations and ask them, "Can you come and talk to the kids? And can you show them something that we could all do?" And, I, and I'm almost thinking that it would be useful to have um, to, to have people come in, almost like you know, like. Um, career in residence, like they've got artists in residence kind of idea. So where you have, uh, you know, you, you've got a data scientist coming in and, you know, and teaching kids some specific, some specific things. And I know some schools are doing that because I have grandsons in Winnipeg um, who their school is every second month, they have a featured profession and that profession teaches to three or four classes at some level something that the kids then develop into a project and then they they then they te then they show it back to the person that they did and the, my nine-year-old grandson um did too one was they worked with a robotics expert and they worked with a magician and the magician uh was their favorite of course <laughs> who doesn't love a good magician i mean seriously right yeah and the robotics sounds fun but when you get into having to do it it's way hard work it's a lot of work it's a lot of work but also super cool 
Also super cool. Yeah, yeah. But the magician, you know, taught them how to do make something disappear, how to make it look like something was disappearing and things like that. And then he challenged them to come up with a magic trick that they could teach other people. And they had to practice it with three other people before they brought it back to the group. And I'm telling you, the stuff they came up with was amazing. I mean, he had material for another 10 years of magic shows from nine-year-old kids. So, um, yeah, so that I asked how many times was he in your class? They said, well, it was all during Zoom because of the pandemic. And he and he was in Australia. So, you know, like, so you, you're not bound by the walls of the school. It brought, brought him in for three 30-minute um, sessions and then one presentation of the kids stuff to him and him saying what he thought about it so that was that's what he did and they 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 tied it in with what their curriculum was and made sure there was an exam question <laughs> that came out of it um so it ended up it works if you want it's volition right um and and the one of the reasons why teachers have less volition around doing things like that is because they're always having curriculum moved around and because they're, everything is dumped on them with no extra resources and they're told to do more with less all the time um and there's just really stressed out. So uh, I'm going to come back to emotional regulation. It'd be good for teachers and students to be doing that. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that part of it sort of, let's take this thing full circle, right? You know, because we started, this as a conversation about thinking about how you, how you sort of help people grow from a leadership standpoint when they find themselves in whatever that world of work happens to be. And this, this goes across all professions. And, you know, because we wanted to really sort of think about workforce in this conversation, full circle on all of this is that, you know, a reminder to everybody that the, the profession that is education and the various components, nuances, and complexities of that as an industry and a profession as a whole, you know, just like all the other industries that folks want to talk about in the popular media, you know, it's an industry that has an opportunity to shift, to grow, and to be whatever it needs to be for the moment that we are living in. And I think that oftentimes that we forget about that a lot of what's happening in the world of education is based on constraints tied to legislative systems that have not kept pace with the times, right? And so we, there's a lot of push that well, educators aren't doing X right or aren't doing or not doing Z the correct way. And the reality of it is, sometimes we have to step back and 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 not lose sight of the fact that the structure within the the that's wrapped around the system is not always conducive to be not, innovative, to be no. transformative, and it does no. not mean that the participants inside that system don't want that. No, the system punishes innovation. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Many times, not always, but many, many times we bump up against this, right? Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and it is, it can be overwhelming if you're one of the participants inside of that, right? I want to be the most amazing, engaged teacher on the planet, and, and I have all that potential, um, and yet I sit inside of a system that will not allow me the opportunity to be innovative with my kids, you know, in that moment, on that day, with the opportunity that's been presented to me. And so, you know, it, it's a quandary as an industry, it is. Part of it, though, is just stepping back and saying, you know, I am not responsible for the education of a child. I'm only responsible for the education that's been assigned to me while I'm there with me in the classroom in the school. And in, I'm, I mean, I, I'm in neighbor, I teach and train youth to, to do neighborhood uh, children's classes, neighborhood camps, neighborhood uh, spirituality education classes where they have a chance to get together and get the kids talk about how they would deal with bullying using some principles that would help them to be better people and the other people too. Stuff like that. So they, 
and it's just like based on the street and that so that it's informal education i also work with not-for-profit groups that do um you know they're like for example indigenous group there's a uh you know an uh, african west african group and they want to build cultural um a sense of cultural identity in their kids that is porous meaning that they they feel they don't feel insular they feel like they belong but they also feel strong in who they are and they're not ashamed of who they are and and so working with those organizations and the informal learning is another piece to the education uh, it's not like like the education system has like the dibs on how people get educated and when you think back on what you remember from what you learned most of it doesn't come from a classroom experience it mostly comes from some something that you you felt when you were at at school at some at some point, or from outside experiences. You had a mentor, you had a neighbor, you had an aunt or an uncle, or you had, um, you know, you had a boss, somebody who taught you something that really mattered to you at that time and was important to you at that time. It was like just in time delivery of what you needed in order to get right. something done, and and it sti- and it sticks with you and has an emotional impact. So if you think I'm really not, it's I don't have to beat myself up up for not being the god of education for every child that walks into my class, no matter what circumstances they come from. Um, I can actually do my part and be satisfied that what I'm doing is making a difference for somebody, if not everybody all the time, at least somebody, some of the time. Um, And I think that's something that all professions have to come to terms with. Um, So, you know, you can only do what's within the realm of your control and then try to partner with the rest and see if you can refer out, you know? Who's a good sports coach that you know? Who's a good, you know, one of the schools that I work with does, they've been doing fiddle fiddle classes. They have one local fiddler, Métis fiddler, and then they have a couple of violin violinists from the symphony orchestra, and they 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 teach twice a week for during noon hour. And though they've they have they, they have churned out, out of this school over a period of, of 10 years, 500 fiddle players. And those kids can do a lot of other stuff. They can perform, they can stand and deliver, they can work in a group, they can teach someone else how to do something on an instrument. And it's because one teacher had this interest. And so it, it's also, it's about pe- being passionate about something that you want to share and bringing other people in. So the teacher isn't the fiddler player. The teacher liked the fiddle playing, brought in the other people and asked them to do it during noon hour. And and they actually found a group of parents found funding for it, and it just ended up becoming. And this is a very poor school in a poor district. Uh, ended up becoming a real a real source of, of joy, um, and and skill development. Yeah. So, so that was that teacher saw themselves as a facilitator of learning, right? Less yes. the stand up yes. stage on the stage, but I don't know how to do this, but I love this, and I think that everybody else will love this. So what if we bring it in and we give it a try? I'm going to facilitate this amazing opportunity that could um, be transformative down the road. Um, and so I think that that's, that's beautiful because it works. And we've seen it time and time and time again um, when educators decide to be a facilitator of learning and they really, really dig in deep to something. It doesn't have to be many things. It could be, it could evolve to that. But even if it's just one thing, like um, your example of you know bringing in the the, the fiddle players and the violinists into the school to have a meaningful impact. Um, and, you know, the flip side of that, and I think this gets all the way back around to the very original piece of our conversation as we're wrapping up here, um, you know, your work around, um, you know, um, leadership um, at the workplace starts super, super early, right? As it, it should. And the fact that 
kids are teaching other kids how to do something on their instrument, play the fiddle, solve some sort of problem. That is, that is leadership at its very finest and at, mm-hmm. at its core, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think uh, that there's, there's this, this whole piece about uh, be, having partners that also protects you as a teacher. And I'm, I'm just saying this because I, I feel that I was completely blind to the political implications of the school and the school system that I worked in at the time. Um, and um, and you're, the more you stand out, the more likely you are to be attacked. Right? So, however, if you have partners who work with you and there's a group of you, first off, you have allies. Secondly, if there's an attack, it gets dissipated. <laughs> and thirdly, you get protection. Um, in ways that you wouldn't if you're just the lone star promoting something. And I think that's just such a default for teachers. They just become the lone star, the lone ranger, the lone, you know, the, the, the super power, super woman, superman person who could do it all. And it just, it ends up really biting them and uh, making it unsustainable for them to continue. So it, it, I think it, it also, it provides to have some other partners and stakeholders engaged protects, protects you. Um, and when you have those partners, like when, when that, that, that teacher was under attack by some parent who was very upset, it was everybody else in the school that came to the teacher's rescue and to all the partners came there and they said, you know, this, this program really matters. And, you know, you have to, you have to, you know, work with, with what the rules are within the program. Um, and, you know, we can't, we can't help you otherwise. And they really stood firm and it was such a united front, uh, that it was, it was, it was really useful, uh, for that for that group and for the teacher to feel some solidarity and some support and teachers need that solidarity and support because they don't get they don't get a lot of it yeah absolutely yeah. there everything is better with a buddy so yeah um yeah absolutely 100 marie thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us we really really enjoyed um, the opportunity to talk about workforce talk about emerging workforce um to really sort of talk about the work um that you have in this space um so thank you very much we were very excited to have you today Thank you. I really appreciate being here. And if if there are any educators that would like me to do some little emotional regulation piece for their for their students, um, or to or to have a little discussion about service and how that might look for them, I'd be happy to do that. So if you have show notes, you can put my contact information there. Yeah, we will absolutely. There will be um, links to your website, and uh, so that folks will be able to get to you in the resource sections of the show notes. So absolutely, Great. thank you so much, Marie. Again, uh, we really appreciate it, and we wish you the the best of luck in your work. We look forward to to seeing what happens. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.